0: The landscape out up here, if you don't respect and appreciate the landscape, it's going to kill you. Um, if you don't respect and appreciate the climate, it's going to kill you. And you could argue if you don't respect and appreciate the people, um, you could also be in trouble.
1: G'day, welcome to Life in the Land, a Grazie Her podcast telling the stories of women living in regional, rural and remote Australia. I'm Em Herbert, your host for today. I'm sure I'm not the only one to sometimes think how good it would be to chuck it all in and head off on an adventure. It can be nice to daydream about how things could be different, even for just a moment. For Lindy Severin, those feelings weren't just a pipe dream. Speaking to Lindy, I get the feeling she's someone who isn't afraid to get stuck in and give things a go. She was the first one in her family to go to university, graduating with a business degree in her mid-twenties as a mature age student, whilst parenting her two young kids as a single mum. After working as a public servant for nearly a decade, Lindy decided to go on a trip of a lifetime when she was 40 years old, riding her motorbike from her home in Wollongong to Darwin. It was a trip that would change her life and eventually see her move to Curtin Springs Station, a million-hectare cattle and tourism enterprise not far from Uluru in Australia's Red Centre. Looking back at taking that first motorbike trip 20 years ago, Lindy had no idea how the holiday would set the course for the rest of her life.
0: There were some things going on um, in the background. I I had been um, seeing a gentleman who was diagnosed with cancer. Uh, We had a very good family friend um, who'd been diagnosed with cancer and passed away um, sort of six weeks later. Public service wasn't all that I had dreamed that it would be. Uh, And particularly when you're... um, My vision of what service was and what the expectation was um, didn't necessarily align and I didn't feel I wanted to compromise my integrity to support a politician basically Mm -hmm. Uh, so I was struggling a bit with that there was the opportunity to go to Darwin so we rode to Darwin did some stuff and then I rode home from Darwin on my own and one of the stops into Central Australia, spending a couple of extra days here and going back out to the rock. I have to say, at that point, the landscape was um, more of a an awareness. When you've only got two hundred kilometres limit on the bike, um, you need to do a lot of planning about what you're carrying and getting one place to the next. Uh, but it was a that was a really special journey for me, doing it on my own in the heat on the bike. Wow. I think about it now, I go, what on earth were you thinking? but it was fairly magic for me uh, and really set the scene for what I decided to do after that.
1: Yeah. Well, tell me about the moment that you decided that the the office job cooped up where you, you didn't even know what season it was outside. When was the moment that you decided, nah, this is it. I'm, I'm going to do something different.
0: Well, certainly the trip to the Northern Territory cemented that uh, and the landscape out up here. If you don't respect and appreciate the landscape, it's going to kill you. Um, if you don't respect and appreciate the climate, it's going to kill you. And you could argue if you don't respect and appreciate the people, um, you could also be in trouble. So when I got back, um, the honesty, and that's the I think that was the word. Just the honesty. There was no bullshit around it. Um, you know, people said what they what they thought, what they meant, what they wanted you to hear. Um, the landscape was fairly upfront about making sure that you knew what was going on. Mother Nature could pull it out of a hat, good or bad, and you had to deal with that. It didn't matter what sort of marketing spin you put on it, you had to deal with the absolute honesty. And that was what I went home with. And I did stay at Curtin Springs. I'd spent a night at Curtin's there and certainly I went back home with conversations from what was happening here and they were fighting fires um, and I can remember asking whether there was anything that I could do to help. We sometimes get people ask those questions now and you go, well, it's a little bit naive to think that someone can just step in and, and do something to help. And I was told very politely, thank you very much for your offer nothing that you can do, but to watch the activity and people that I didn't meet at that point, that I met years later but didn't meet at that point, um, doing the things that we do now every day um, and just seeing how it all meshed together um, was, and again, that level of honesty. Mm. They were walking around, coming back off the graders and out of the vehicles. They were covered in dirt. They were having something to eat and a cold beer. And so just, again, that honesty of what was happening was just so important. And that's what I took home. And when I went home, still dealing with uh, not so much transparency about working in the public service, you know, the challenges of, of people in my life being sick, that was pretty tough. Uh, and I went, well, I don't need to be playing all the games. I can, I can pick and choose. Um, which parts are really important to me, and that's what I did. So I um, told the kids that they could take whatever the tupperware they wanted out of the cupboard, um, packed up the house underneath them, and put it into storage, and hopped on the motorbike and took off. I didn't come directly back here. I went doing what you know some of the backpackers and stuff do now. I went making coffee and picking fruit and living in a tent and doing that all midlife crisis a little bit early. Um, but it was, it was it was a really important time. So at one point I decided it was probably time to get a real job again uh, and uh, I was down in the, the Riverlands picking grapes uh, and went into the job shop because you didn't have anything on your phones at that point. Because um, this and, is 20 uh, years ago, isn't it? Job. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. 20. So
0: looking for, a, looking for a real job. And I was actually thinking about going to the Kimberley's. So I hadn't been up there. Um, I'd been to the NT, but I hadn't got as far as the Kimberley's. And, um, and I thought with my background that I might have something to offer in some, some of the business sectors up there. Uh, saw a job up on the, um, on the board for a bookkeeper at a remote roadhouse. I went and I asked where it was and they said, oh, it's 100 k's from the rock. And I said, oh, Curtain Springs. I said, oh, you know it. I said, yes, it's part of the reason I'm living in a tent and picking grapes, um, which confused the person on the other end of the counter, that's for sure. <laughs> so what was really interesting, though, was uh, that was Maydeck, one of, the, one of the job shops. And when I did get to Curtain Springs, we used them to find staff um, which is why bookkeeper job was up on the wall. So I, you know, I thought that was quite interesting um, over time, just those those connections. Um, and we, I got to be quite quite good friends with the, the lady on the other end of the phone at egg over that time um, after I got up here. So I you know, applied for the job.
1: It does give me goosebumps, Lindy, the, the cyclic nature of that. And uh, it's almost like you manifested your own life um I guess with that sense of of feeling that you had at Curtin Springs for that one night of accommodation and then you s- somehow get a job back there what was your first yeah. impression of your now husband Ash boss of okay. Curtain Springs well,
0: well there's a couple of parts of that story so I you know finished the grape cutting contract that I was on and and uh, and then it was going to take me a couple of days to get up here so I Called and left a message um, with whoever answered the phone saying that you know I'm gonna be there on Wednesday. Um, I then get a phone call back, answer the phone, going, hi, this is Lindy. And uh, Ash is on the other end of the phone going, and who the fuck are you? <laughs> um, and I went, well, I'm Lindy and who's this? And he said, oh, it's Ash from Clinton Springs. I said, oh, I'm coming up to work for you. And he said, I didn't think for you, start talking. Um, so I found out afterwards that I had been talking to Peter, Ash's dad, who um, just the most wonderful man in the world. But he sound, always sounded 30 years younger on the phone than what he was. And Ash was away at a funeral. Um, when he came home, Popper had said, oh, I've employed a new bookkeeper. Uh, so Peter and Ash had, had one of the strongest father-son relationships that I have ever seen in my entire life but I think that probably stretched it a little <laughs> bit um, so I had come home to this fate accompli with not even having had a conversation with me um, and uh, and had to find a way through that um, because I was on the I was on the road coming so I did stop at Earl Dunder which is at the corner of the Stewart Highway and the Lasseter Highway and I hopped on the internet booth and sent a few last emails. And, uh, and I can remember thinking really clearly to myself. Um, and it's a line that I use with staff, new staff now. Um, and that was not to judge it, that I made a commitment for a three-month trial period for that sort of position. You can't just do a month. You know, we had that discussion. Um, if it didn't work for me, no hard feelings if it didn't work on the other side, no hard feelings. Um, So I was sitting at Irlanda thinking, well, this is different to what you've ever been in. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a different situation. It's quite a closed situation because you're not part of a town or a closed community um, and you don't have a right to judge it. So just let it roll for a little while. Just learn how it happens before you form an opinion. And that was probably the most important piece of information um, that I took with me when I walked in the door. Um, First impressions of Ash was him walking back down to the shed from the kitchen area. Um, Not the most communicative man, and he certainly wasn't at that point. Um, He's in the background being a bit (laughs) noisy. Um, so we didn't have a lot to say to each other for a while I sort of stepped in and started doing what I needed to do um and uh and he also needed to take that step backwards and go let's just let it roll for a little while because I was the first person in this position that hadn't sort of been doing something else uh in the business before they moved into the office so there was lots of things that I needed to learn and lots of things that that others here needed to learn to be able to fit me in. Um, but that, just let it roll for a little while, don't judge it, um, mm. is still something that is my mantra probably. Just let it happen. Um, don't form that snap opinion um, and then you've got better information. So
1: that's what I did. Well, I think you're, it's lucky you're bloody tough because uh, I think I would have been wobbling in my boots to have that sort of introduction <laughs> to my new boss. But you certainly, you did let it roll and you, it rolled into a, a relationship and love and, and marriage. And, and here you are 20 years later, um, helping to run the show. Uh, tell me about Curtin Springs Station and, and how big it is and um, what sort of operation you run there. Okay, so
0: Curtain Springs is a diversified pastoral and tourism business. So we've got a million-acre cattle station uh, as well as the tourist side of the business. So um, when Peter and Ash's mum and dad came out, uh, you talk about adventure, that's where the adventure is. Yeah. 1956. A young married couple, um, you know, a toddler at their knee, uh, starting their own adventure um, on a property that had been foreclosed on by their financial institution. Peter had been out here, but Dawn hadn't. And Dawn had been raised in the Adelaide Hills, um, so she was a bit more of a town girl rather than a remote, um, middle-of-nowhere girl. Uh, so they arrived at Curtin Springs, which was not on the main northwest um, spur of the territory. So a lot of those stations had been established for a long time and there were you know, all of the infrastructure and, and a homestead and all of that stuff. Um, that's not what Curtin Springs was. Curtin Springs was a tin lean shoe um, and a, a bit of a, a bow shed and a windmill and nothing else. Mm. So... They arrived to take over the station um, and take over the debt um, as this young married couple. All their stuff in the back of a truck, um, some cattle uh, walking in um, that had been borrowed from their, uh, from Peter's sister and brother-in-law. Um, Dawn arrived. Pete and Dawn arrived. Pete stopped the, the vehicle. Dawn said, why have we stopped? And Peter said, honey, we're home. And Dawn said, have I got news for you? And it's all bad. Um, <laughs> she And she didn't drive. And the family folklore goes that Peter kept all of the keys to all of the vehicles in his pockets at all times, just in case one day she decided to learn to drive. Um, get the hell out of it. And, <laughs> and get the hell out of it. So, um I never met Dawn. Um, We lost Dawn in the in the 80s. Uh, And Peter always says uh, or said that there were various times where both of them threw their hat on the ground and said, We're done. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other one said, No, let's wait till next week or let's wait until the week after. And, um, And they were both on. Different parts of the swing at any point in time, and that he often wondered what would have happened if they both felt the same way at the same time. Um, yes. But they got through all of that, um, and uh, they they Peter built Donna a new bow shed because she was not going to live in that. Um, so he built her her own bow shed, and Tim Lintu um, they lived. The to originally was just the kitchen. Uh, they lived under the bow shed for three years they had an inch of rain just after they got here and and Pete thought that was a really good omen um, but then it didn't rain again for nine years wow so Dawn didn't know that the bowshed covering wasn't waterproof because uh. she didn't have any more than two or three mil of rain in any one year um or at any one time for nine years uh. So um, generating an income off the station was impossible. But it was the start of, the, of those early intrepid travelers um, heading out into the back of beyond. So the first year they were here, six people drove down the road. Two stock and station agents who wanted them to increase their mortgage by borrowing some more, uh, buying some more cattle. Two friends who thought they'd perished and were on a body recovery mission, um, and two bona fide, what we would now call tourists, in 12 months. So the second year, there was a 50% increase. So it's all about the numbers. Um, They had uh, nine people come through. So in the two years, 15 people. but then after that, the numbers started to increase. And Len Chuet was based in Alice Springs, and he's not ever give, been given the credit for opening up this country and starting the tourist industry the way that he should. So he was running a bus out from Alice Springs, um, two-day trip to get here, camp out overnight, petrol drums in the aisle of the non-air-conditioned bus, um, stop at Curtin Springs, drop off the fuel, pick up water. Uh, remembering there's no permanent water, um, west of here. So, all of the world water for the early development at the Rock was um, all cutted in from Curtain Springs in 44 gallon drums. So, for human use and for building and construction. Um, ultimately, Pete and Dawn said to Len, How about we make your guys a cup of tea and a sandwich? Um, it's one less meal you need to worry about, and it's a little bit of income for us. So Curtin Springs was the first Wayside Inn, which is the name that's given to these remote businesses, um, certainly in in the Territory, but the top end of Western Australian Queensland. So we're not a roadhouse as such. We do sell fuel and things, but it was a broader range of services um, that we provide to visitors. So we were the first Wayside Inn in Central Australia um, and the first tourist stop. Um, developed outside Alice Springs, so the history of the development out at the National Park um, has, you know, there's there's all of the the motels and and activity out at the base, and then um, the closing of all of those and the development of the resort outside the National Park, um, so we've got now 27 accommodation rooms, the campground, fuel store, bar, um, restaurant, you know, all of those things. Uh, but originally it was born passing a cup of tea out, out through the window of the bow uh, of the stone house. Um, so there was the bow shed and there was the tin kitchen, then there was the tin house, um, and then there was the stone house that was built. Rock from the station um, around the tin house, so um, cups of tea through the window um, out of the stone house to to visitors going through. So, and that's still what we do: providing those services to visitors. Um, we've expanded that a bit along the <laughs> way, um, <Well>. but ultimately <laughs> that's what the core of the business is, um, as well as the station. So we're still running. Um, a million-acre cattle station, uh, as well as making cups of tea for visitors.
1: Well, you went from that those nine people in 1957 to what? what how many tourists do you have traveling through uh, in an average year, a non-COVID <sighs> year?
0: Non-COVID year, um, and that's you know that's not an easy question to answer. So, in the couple of years before COVID, um, we had over 4,000 room nights um, in accommodation um, and 80,000 transactions through the tools. Um, so you have hundreds of thousands of, of people um, going or coming. You know, mm. We're the only bitumen or the only road in on the NT side, so they've got to go in and they've got to come out. Um, and we provide an alternative. So a lot of, a lot of visitors prefer to stay somewhere somewhere um, let's go back to that word a little bit more honest um, and support the, the local businesses rather than stay at the resorts uh, we've got a campground that we free camping for the unpowered site so a lot of visitors um, take advantage of that base themselves here set up their camp go out to the to the rock go back to kings canyon um and uh they still do that whether they're staying in accommodation or staying in the campground so um winter is the busier time of the year uh summer is our quiet season and certainly in those first few years peter and dawn closed during the summer because there weren't any any visitors because there's Um, no air conditioning now we're open three hundred no air, no air conditioning. Um, and the and the biggest thing was no international visitors. So during this traditionally non-COVID, um, the split between international and domestic visitors for us is almost 50-50. Wow. Uh, but during the summer, the international visitors are a greater proportion. Mm. So they're coming out of traditionally out of their northern hemisphere winter. Mm and they do not know what and they're, they're coming, coming down into our <laughs> summer and they they don't always um but certainly nowadays air-conditioned cars air-conditioned rooms all of those things and i can remember a um a conversation that really stands out for me i was talking to a couple under the bow shed one day going oh you're, you know your first visit um to central australia and they said yes our first visit to central australia but our ninth to Australia and I said nine times that's amazing that's great and she said yeah we've been married for 18 years and they lived in the UK Um, and I when I married him I said I would do one winter one northern winter but every second winter you needed to take me to the southern hemisphere Um, So he'd been doing that for 20 years and so this was their, and they tended to just come back to Australia. So this was their um, ninth trip to Australia. So um, summer we have um, is our quiet season, but we tend to have a lot more international visitors rather than domestic visitors. Australians are going to go to the beach. They're not going to go to the desert during the summer. Although I say and certainly over the last couple of years with COVID and thinking about how do you pitch the region, um, you really can't call yourself an Australian until you've done a summer in the desert. <laughs> uh, I think should be the way that we should be running it. but um, so yes, yeah, so we're open all year uh, and uh, sometimes busier than others obviously. Um, and that's the same on the station. sometimes in the year are busier than others.
1: And you are the only, correct me if you're wrong, but if I'm wrong, but you are the only station to run Murray Greys, is that correct? Cattle? Murray Grey cattle? Yeah, yeah, Mm.
0: certainly in this part of the world. So Central Australia, we're below the tick line. Um, We don't have to have the Brahman or Brahman Cross to to deal with that tick or to offer that tick resistance. Um, And we don't sell into the live export market. And the vast majority of anything selling into the live export market, again, needs to be um, a Brahmin or a Brahmin cross or a Brahmin breed um, to help with that tick resistance. In Central Australia, if you want to sell into live export markets, you run those cattle, um, but you, we don't have to because of the landscape. So Central Australia is predominantly British bred cattle um, and selling into the southern markets of either directly to slaughter or to um, or to the feedlot. So it's a lot of Angus, Shorthorn, Hereford in the region. Um, Ash has always uh, loved. The Murray Greys, the, you know, great mothering ability, wonderful quiet temperament, um, uh, ability to survive in the landscape. There's a lot of people sort of hear that we've got Murray Greys and go, "Oh, but they're, you know, they're really soft. How do they survive?" Not hard as nails, um, cope really well, um, and because they're very placid, they just get on with it, roll with the flow. Don't judge it. Back to the <laughs> don't judge it stone and form just an roll opinion. With the flow. <laughs> Don't form an opinion um, and just let it roll. Uh, So the greys are doing a wonderful job for us, Um, really great cattle. And and we'd made a decision in 2010 we had another nine years of Valley Tough drought. we had been decimated pretty hard by um, feral camels that had destroyed all of the fencing infrastructure, so we couldn't control the herd. Um, we couldn't control the breeding, so we had a line of really small, lightweight cows that were either small because it was the wrong bull with the right cow at the right time, um, or because they hadn't had anything to eat before after they were born. So. We went. Now's the opportunity for us to really make that change. So we um, we sold about um, twelve or thirteen hundred cows, uh, and we bought three hundred Murray Grey cows, um, mm. and have rebuilt the herd from there. So the majority of the herd now is is grey, um, which is just really magic to look at. Um, something Ashen had been wanting to do for a long time. <laughs>
2: Making a decision about your children's education can be a struggle. Boarding school is something that many children from rural, regional and remote areas experience in their lives. It can be one of the greatest experiences making lifelong friends, getting a great education and being offered amazing extracurricular options such as sports and cultural activities. But making a decision about your child's education can be difficult. So, Grazy Her has created a guide to help make that hard decision a little easier for you. In our current autumn issue, there's a lift out for you to read. It features some fantastic schools and expo information, along with insights about boarding school from our regular contributors, Jane Smith, Jane Cudahy and Grace Quast. If you don't have the magazine, you can head to grazyher.com.au for our digital GrazyHer boarding school guide. It has extended stories on all the schools featured, a directory and direct links to all school websites.
1: And you run about 3,500 head of a self-replacing um, mob, but you don't muster with horses and choppers. How do you muster your cattle? Yeah, so, you
0: know, our perfect number is about 4,000 um, uh, and we water trap and most of Central Australia water traps. Uh, so you have a one-way gate system on the yards, um, just a sort of set of fingers in a like a door frame. And the cattle have to walk through the one-way gate system. Same as pushing the trolley into the supermarket at Woolies or Coles, where you can push it one way, but you just can't push it back the other way. Very simple mechanical system. Um, So you've got an in trap facing one direction, an out trap facing the other direction. So because we control the water, very rarely that there's any water laying in the landscape and there's no permanent water in the landscape. Um, So when you control every drop of water, then you can water trap because every single drink that they need, they have to walk into the yards to get it. So um, historically, we've used horses and helicopters. Um, Now we simply use the water trapping. So the cattle put themselves in the yard um, when they need to get a drink. So all you do is close the out trap off so they can still get in to get a drink. Um, You set the trap's late in the afternoon and you go back in the morning and see what's coming in to get a drink overnight. Uh, The benefit of running a long, what we call a longitudinal herd, is that cows don't need to drink every day. Um, Horses like to drink every day. Cows don't need to drink or don't want to drink. So they can go in and get a drink, get a big belly full, go and lay in the shade, do a big wee, go back in, fill up again. Um, and go out walking two or three days feeding and then walking back two or three days feeding. So some animals may only come in to drink every four, five, six days. Um, so you, you never get all your animals together in one go, but it means that you can do little bites of cattle work um, consistently. So you don't need to be running a huge crew on the station uh, because you're not trying to work thousands and thousands head at a single time. Dictated by by the weather, so we're not in the wet. Um, we're not in the tropical areas, uh, and we can we can work cattle all year, um, in a really soft and gentle way. Uh, you're not. Um, they're walking into the yards. They know it's a safe place. They walk into the yards every few days of their entire life. Um, so you you're working with them um, and their natural instincts and makes life in the yards uh, a lot better for everybody and
1: certainly a lot less pressure on the cattle. Mm, it really does um, sound like it minimizes the stress on the animal, which is fantastic for for weights and, and for the benefit of their well-being. Um, and so the the alongside the cattle, you run the tourist operation and you also um, have an interesting side hustle with native grasses paper. Tell me about that and, and how you process that in the old abattoir. I don't think we've ever called it a side hustle, um, but <laughs> that, that can be a new set of words.
0: So, um, so yeah, in the in the seventies and the eighties, Pete and Ash had a fully licensed commercial abattoir here. They were only forty years ahead of their time, um, and ultimately, it was closed. Uh, and it was a great storage building. So we had this. We had this building. We all. Also had a lot of questions being asked. So we had the global financial crisis. We had the live export ban. Um, so although we don't sell into the live export market, um, that ban had an impact on every single beef producer in Australia in mm. the couple of years following that. Uh,
1: so And this is both around sides 2010, of our wasn't it, 2012? 11,
0: 11 12, 12, 13, yep. yeah, mm-hmm. so in that um, so we launched the paper in 2014, so a couple of years leading up to that. Um, so we had both sides of the business that were had, were facing some issues. Global financial crisis, uh, tourism sector across the world struggled. So we'd gone from the utilisation rate in accommodation from over 60% sort of year round, so 60% of rooms booked every night, mm. um, to under under 20 and it was actually under 15 so and our profit drivers in the business are meal in the tourist side of the business are meals and accommodation so it doesn't matter how much petrol you sell you can't pay the mortgage with that you can't pay the insurance out of that you flat to even cover staff costs so profit drivers are meals and accommodation and we had lost those and when the tourism sector started back um we've always had grey nomads we've always had caravans. Um, but it was what I call the the rise of the Brits camper van. So you had another segment of the demographic who were visiting um, that weren't buying meals and accommodation. So average stay of five nights in the region um, and they were camping and free camping and shopping at Woolies. So how do we get meals and accommodation back? How do we tell the story of the landscape? We're really proud of the way that we manage the land that we're responsible for, and we do a bloody good job of doing that, as most farmers do, and certainly most stations do. Um, How do we tell that story? How do we tell the story of how can you run production hand-in-hand with running a million-acre wildlife corridor, which is what we are? Mm. Um, How do you how do you talk to people about the cost of looking after land is huge? The land has to produce that income. You can't put your hand out and expect somebody else to pay the cost of looking after that land. Um, that Somebody or you have to produce that. The land has to produce that. So how do you talk to people about, you know, how do we run cattle in a way that doesn't destroy it? How do we produce an income off the land while still protecting it so we can protect it? Um, how, you know, how do you talk to visitors about the fact that most of the land they're driving through, as a tourist in Central Australia, the vast majority of the land you're driving through is private. Uh, it's not public land. It's not national park land. It's not um, vacant crown land. It's not Aboriginal land. It's actually private property. So just because there's not a white picket fence doesn't mean it's not somebody's home um, and you can't just go and do whatever you want, wherever you want, um, because you can't see a building. So how do you have all of those conversations? Um, And and they were all part of the, part of the, um, what we were talking about around the kitchen table. uh, And the other thing was, Central Australia was a destination that you know people came to as a as a teenager, as I did. But we weren't necessarily the adventure capital of the world anymore. You can go cave diving in Thailand um, as opposed to drive down the Bitumen and go to the desert. So, how do we reinvent ourselves a little bit? And you can't expect Tourism Australia, Tourism NT, Tourism Central Australia um, to do all of that hard work. They can promote, but they need products they need activities, they need destinations uh, for them to be able to promote. So how do we as a tourism business do our share of that? So we had all the questions. Mm. Businesses always have all the questions. Um, We didn't necessarily have any answers. And then as part of the Federal Camel Project, um, a lot of people know that there there were camels culled as part of that project. Uh, But there were lots and lots of other parts of that project. And one of them was about looking at the carbon possibilities, carbon implications of removing feral camels from the landscape. And we were part of that project, that sub-project as well. And one of those scientists um, out studying the carcasses of camels to work out what the carbon calculations were, Um, He just made an off-the-cuff comment one day about, well, they make paper out of the effects, don't they? Um, I shrugged my shoulders just like any eight-year-old and Mm -hmm. said, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, But I did bring that back to the table with Ash and said, I think we can do that. I think that that would really be something that we could do here that would add to our story. never made a piece of paper in my life, Um, yeah, I'm the maths nerd, I'm the accountant, I'm not the art mum, um, never made paper as a child, never made paper at school, never made recycled paper with my own children. Um, so, but I thought that we could do it. Um, and we had the building, and we had the old abattoir building, uh, which meant we could separate it a little bit from the, you know, the main activities here um, and it also meant I could put a price on it. We had it here with the main buildings and it just needed to be something that everybody could access all the time. And fundamentally, we needed to be able to generate additional income uh, so we could separate it, we could put, um, put a price on it. So we go. Out, we cut the native grasses, so all of the native grasses. So, yes, we use spinifex. Um, we use oat grass, kerosene grass, woolly-butt grass, um, oh, kangaroo grass, you know, all of, all of the different grasses. And we've got you know, dozens and dozens of different varieties of grasses um, on Curtin Springs of native grasses. The needles off the desert oak trees um, make a really beautiful dark brown paper. A um, lot of trial and error. So we go and cut it by hand. Um, We then cook the fibre and soften it. Um, So think about taking it from dried spaghetti to cooked spaghetti, so making it soft and then beating it, so mashing it up and turning it into a a pulp and then pulling the individual sheets um, of paper. So every piece is handmade, every piece is different, um, can't be duplicated. Uh, We put inclusions in it, so we put uh, some flowers in it. We put a little bit of clay in it to give it a bit of a red colour sometimes. Not the sand. The sand's too coarse and doesn't release its colour, but some clay does. Um, some cow poo to give it a speckle.
2: Uh,
0: some bangtails off the cows uh, to give it some texture as well. Uh, and uh, we make this beautiful, beautiful paper. Um, so we run tours of the, of the process. Uh, and we have products to sell. We—I had always known that there would be something in the art sector. You know, the art sector should be interested. Um, I went, when I first started talking about it. I said to Ash, "Oh, we could make paper out of the out of the spinifex." And he put his hands over his ears and did the la, 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 la sound, um, taking the approach that if he ignored me for long enough, it would all just go away. Um, Now, he's been married to me long enough to know that's never going to work. His next question was, who's going to buy it? And I said, the girls will buy it because it's pretty. And there should be something in the art sector. And my thinking was as simple as if you as an artist couldn't sell your depiction of the landscape, on the landscape, if you couldn't sell that at a premium, you needed a new marketing lady. Hmm. So um, I didn't know what that would look like, but I thought that there should be something. Um, now, uh, our daughter Amy came home um, to spend some time back here and she came into the office one day and said, Mom, I need to talk to you and shut the door uh, Ash headed out the door and said, just let me know what that's all about when it's finished. Um, uh, Because those conversations can sometimes not be easy. Uh, But Amy said, I think that we can use the paper to make beads and then use the beads to make jewellery. and I think that would really add to the story. Um, and she's been doing that. So she that was our step into the art sector. So we were able to use the jewellery then as a step into wearable arts, sustainable couture, eco-fashion. Um, we've had about 20 artists in residence come through now. Obviously COVID put a stop to them and we're not sure what that program will look like into the future. Uh, so that opened um, the doors into the art sector um, as such. So in our spare time, so straddling the pastoral industry and the tourism industry and the art sector um, just for something different every day. But the, the paper is, um, but when we pull a piece of paper off the board that's got the texture um, of the fibre, could have seeds in it, could have flowers in it, Um, and it's just breathtaking. You go, how clever am I to be able to create that? And um, when we're sitting at the table packing things, you know, making cards, packing paper, doing all of that stuff, everyone's going to have a favourite thing on the day. Um, And we often say, if it's not your favourite thing today, you can say, oh, someone will love it. Mm -hmm. Um, Uh, and that's our sort of code word for it's not my favorite today and the reality is someone does love it Um, and every day you pick a new favorite because there's something else that's happening we were we were packing some paper yesterday so you know a number of us sitting around the table during the afternoon having a cup of tea and a bowl of chocolate you know packing paper Um, and it's just stunning so I'm a firm believer now, probably never used to be, um, but a firm believer now that it doesn't matter what it is and you're creating stories for people to listen to. You know, you've found that creative piece for you. Um, I always thought it was about making spreadsheets in. You know, <laughs> that was always what I could do creatively. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's something that we really everyone needs to find that thing that they can create and feel proud of and it gives you a buzz
1: Mm. you know
0: it's being really honest about it, it it makes you feel good so um and visitors really love it uh so we do tours we do tours of uh of the paper making process um there's paper products for sale uh if you can get of your nearest and dearest together and want to come out and spend a a few days we can we can do workshops you know go through the whole process and let people immerse themselves we do workshops like that for international art groups and domestic art groups as well
1: it is such a beautiful way to gently take a piece of that landscape home and we always say you know take memories not objects from a place that you visit but that is a way that you can really um to tell the story to others back back home that haven't been with you on the trip it is such a very gentle way and i really do like the way that you say that you're telling the story of the landscape because it is a product of the <laughs> landscape um and diversification is such a buzzword but that's such a unique offering which doesn't normally spring to mind in desert country but there are such gorgeous uh flora and fauna out there that are so oh. unique to that to that area <laughs>
0: The intricacy of the landscape uh, you know, we were talking earlier about, uh, you know, teenage eyes not necessarily seeing that. Um, and our landscape is huge. Um, and we've got lots of big things in it. You know, there's big rocks and there's big sand hills and there's big distances. But it's what happens at the ground level um, that just fascinates me. Uh, and... One of the favourite things that I do is go over onto the sandhill with the grandbabies and the and the reptile track book um, and go go find the story of what's been happening. We may not see the marsupial mice, you may not see the little lizards because um, they're going to hide up in the spinifex, but so you you know they're there and you can you can read the tracks and you can tell the story um, of what's been what's been happening so um, and that level of intricacy the landscape has more happening in it than you can possibly imagine um, and every single time every single time we go out onto the station um, and ash has been doing it you know every day since he was three every single time he'll come home and go i saw this or i saw that or i saw something different you know lights different on the day it's shining on a different rock as you're driving past or you see a different tree in the in you know off on the horizon that's got the sun shining on it today Um, just just amazing um every single
1: day yeah it's absolutely magic and i think it you can't not have a profound experience with that sort of space and landscape around you, especially for visitors. I mean, you grew up in the Riverina region. It couldn't be more different, but at the same time, just this it's so spectacular. And I think the awe and the wonder, it really get, helps you to touch base with those emotions, which can get pretty numbed out in our very digital worlds and busy, busy lives. Uh, you know, the last two years, they've been pretty tough and you and I spoke last week and, and you said they've been tough financially, spiritually, emotionally and physically. Just how has it been having not had that tourist base come through and and the false start of last year thinking that things were going to reopen and then not? I mean, how have you got through that? It's been tough
0: um, and I think any small business in Australia it doesn't matter what sector you're in, um, it's been tough. Uh, and uh, 20, 2020, um, 18, 19, 20 were also really dry here. So uh, we had um, we lightened the load as far as cattle were concerned in early 2020 um, because Ash didn't believe we were going to get the summer rain and we didn't. It didn't rain until March 21. So we had. Um, and it was, it was a really hard dry. Um, so uh, we, we sold some cattle um, at that point. And it, it's, I know I'm digressing a little bit, but a lot of people say, oh, but you've had some good rain now. So, you know, and cattle prices are good, so you must be rolling in it. You go, yeah, no. Um, we had some rain in March 2020. We'd sold everything that we could possibly sell. Um, and to leave us with the core cow herd. Rained in March, cattle need to, cows need to put on some conditions so that they can then cycle, exactly the same as us. If we're not physically well, we don't cycle. Um, then they need to wait nine months for, to produce the calf. They've got a nine-month gestation, just like us. And then that calf has to grow for a year um, before you've got something to sell. So it's two years after the rain before you can generate an income from that rain event. Uh, so we've you know we got a lot of calves on the ground now and we've, we've had good summer rain over this, this summer, good rain in November, good rain in the last month or so um, and cattle in just amazing condition. They're just wonderful, lots of calves on the ground and lots of bellies full again. So you know, that will roll um, and give us an income towards the end of 22. As far as the tourists are concerned, it's been just awful and um, most small businesses and others, it's not just small business, but it, you know, that's the platform we're sitting on, the inability to be able to make any decisions, the constant changing, um, but still the pressure from outside to be planning ahead. Um, and you know, we're certain the tourism sector is certainly facing that now. Well, we need to be planning what we're doing and marketing into the international market and all of it. We don't know what it's going to look like, um, and that level of uncertainty has been a challenge. Um, the constant changing of the rules and the impact on the ground of decisions that were made, um, knee-jerk reactions that were were made that had an impact that we then just had to roll with the punches um, with no acknowledgement of the disastrous results of some of those decisions. Um, We consider ourselves to be extremely fortunate in that we've been able to increase debt. We were sitting in a financial situation where over the last two years we've been able to increase debt. Not every business has been able to do that. Um, And we're now looking at multiple years at the end of of our lives, um, still paying down debt. But we've been able to do that and we are very grateful for that opportunity. Um, Good friends, the ones who understand what's happening in your world, because it's probably happening in their world, being able to just decompress um, and cry and laugh with those people at the same time. Um, I'm usually the one who says, if it's on my desk today, then I need to finish it today. I don't go home until it's finished, even if home's just across the wall. Um, I finish what's on the desk today, because tomorrow's got all its own shit. You know, it's going to be, tomorrow's got all its own stuff happening on your desk. The thing I'm doing differently now is that I'm walking away, I'm going home with the block of chocolate and the remote control. And if I get to four o'clock on an afternoon and go, I'm done for the day, then I'm allowing myself the opportunity to do that. We've learned a lot of things about ourselves and we've learned a lot of things uh, inside the business, Um, I'm not going to be quite as flexible in the future about things like pricing, you know, in the past you bend over backwards to help somebody. Um, Now very clear about what the pricing structures need to be um, because we haven't been able to play swings and roundabouts. So you can't offset one part um, of the business um, with something else, everything needs to stand alone. And I think that's going to be something that businesses will find quite different this year because we can't ride that emotional roller coaster anymore. Mm. Um, we actually need to put some protections in place, and uh, we've been quite honest—you know, very honest—about um, how tough it's been. Uh, and I think that's been really important. Has there been good times? Of course, there has. Um, have we faced a lot of loss over the last couple of years? Uh, and I think they've been harder. So. We lost um, Ash's dad almost exactly 12 months ago. Um, we lost my dad uh, in September. We've had some other significant losses. Um, and I think those losses have been harder. Mm. Um, it's, it's, taken, it's taken some time to even get back to a balanced position on some of those and I'm certainly not I'm certainly not there. Um, And it it feels like those losses have been harder than maybe they could have been in other circumstances. And I know other people have felt the same thing. It's just been that last thing that we just really is that what we're going to have to deal with today. Um, But we don't do the things that we do without having that level of resilience. Um, and we talk about resilience, uh, and it's not only resilience in the landscape, it's resilience in the business. You know, how do we make it work? It's resilience in our, in our relationships, you know, in, in my relationship with Ash, you know, how do we protect that? Mm. Um, because that's the core of everything that we're doing. Um, those things are really important. Uh, and sometimes it's going back to those basics and sometimes it's about taking the chocolate and the remote control and just going
1: home. (laughs) Um, Oh well I just you know I hope for for you guys that this as as we talked about this isn't going to be even a good year I just hope that it's an average year and that you get some visitors through the gates. Yeah. Something that I think I, I take away from your story as well is that um it's it's never too late to uh restart your life or to change direction and uh I, t- I think it's very inspiring how you have have really I don't know you just changed your life so drastically at 45 doing doing heading up north I mean is that something that you think about and do you think that's something that that other people get from your story
0: Um I'm a firm believer in that you need to keep moving. You know, it's a little bit like um your tennis coach telling you that as long as you're moving, you can respond. Coming from a dead start is a lot harder. So during all of these processes, you know, when we started the paper, um, you'd be sitting talking to people going, this is what we're thinking, and somebody would drop a pearl on the table and go, oh, of course we can we can look at that or do that um, build that into the equation and the doors you're supposed to step through will open up in front of you um, you just need to be have your eyes open to be able to see them uh, and uh, I've never been one to stand still never been one to um, and it's not it's not, I don't I personally don't think it's about being driven. Um, I think it's just about being sensible. Um, you need to be looking, you need to be learning. Uh, you need to be sucking it all up and spitting it out in a different way. Um, and I've been extremely fortunate uh, to have some of those opportunities and had people in my life, um, people in my life that, said yes, uh, and Ash's dad, um, Papa, was an absolute classic at that. He didn't say no. He, might, he and Ash might roll their eyes um, and go, well, how are we gonna make that happen? Um, but it was about um, supporting those discussions. Uh, and you know, Peter was, was 93 when we lost him. Um, we would talk to him about going to the trade shows with tourism, you know, going to the big trade shows, being away for a week and meeting a thousand people and doing all of that stuff. And he loved getting all the feedback about that. He might not have understood it all, um, and neither he should have to, because it can be really quite strange. But it was we have to do that. We can't expect people to just come to us we have to be doing the work and letting them know that we're there um, and that's exactly the same in everything else we can't be sitting waiting for someone to knock on the door we need to be walking down the street so we can find them hmm. um, so just keeping your feet moving
1: just keeping your feet moving lindy i just i appreciate your you chatting to me so much i've enjoyed it so much it's, i've had goosebumps numerous times oh. so thank you very much <laughs>
0: Thank you for thinking about including including us.
1: This was such a refreshing conversation. I love Lindy's straight talking, her aptitude and her honesty around how the last 2 years have been for her. Life on the land ain't easy. throw in a pandemic, a crumbling tourism sector and some dry, difficult times, it certainly sorts the wheat from the chaff. I love Lindy's appreciation for the landscape around her and what she calls the million hectare wildlife corridor that she, her husband Ash and their team are custodians of. I love how they've pivoted to adapt and how they'll continue to innovate through whatever comes up next. I wish them an average year. And I can't wait for my next trip to the NT to drop in for a cuppa. Don't forget our autumn issue of Grazy Her Magazine is on the stands at a quality newsagent's near you. Pick up your copy and get ready for all the inspo. Bring on chunky knit season. And if you have a moment, the team and I would so appreciate if you could rate and review the podcast on the platform you're listening from right now. It truly helps others to find us. Until next time, keep well. This is a Grazy Her podcast produced by Manson & Company.